little more than 30 years ago, a coin dealer from California and a close circle of his dealer friends bestowed new life upon the rare coin industry with the introduction of a market-acceptable third-party grading service. But there is far more to the story of the early days of PCGS than what you know, and the industry as we know it today was built because of and in spite of the ideas that went into the creation of the company. We talked to two men who know more about it than anybody else, PCGS founders David Hall and John Danruther. I asked them what they got right and what they got wrong with the concept behind PCGS and whether the industry as we know it today would even be recognizable back when they launched the company. It's an interesting 40-minute conversation, and it's coming up next on the Coin Week Podcast. Hi there, Dave and John. Thank you for stopping by to talk with me on the Coin Week Podcast. Our pleasure. Yes. It's a great honor to have both David Hall and John Danruther, two of the principal founders of the Professional Coin Grading Service, together on the Coin Week Podcast. The truth of the matter is that your company charted a new course for the future of the rare coin industry, and we wouldn't be where we are today with what the coin market has become without an idea that the two of you and other associates fleshed out, an idea that was not guaranteed to succeed. Uh, so not only would I like to congratulate you for 30-plus years of grading coins, but also I wanted to ask some questions to get your insights into what you saw from the front lines of the revolution, how things did and did not develop as you expected, and uh, really how today's coin market compares, if it does at all. So the idea that you had for the future of the coin market when you started grading coins in 1986. Well, John just pulled out some uh, handguns. Air guns. Yeah, air guns. It was uh, the wild, wild west. Uh, everybody was his own grading service. It was uh, buyer beware. Uh, in 81 and 82, prices came way down after they went soared in a couple big bull markets in the 70s. And uh, starting in 82-ish, 83-ish, the focus really got on quality, and even more so than it was in the 70s, where there was also a big quality focus. And uh, because it was even more so focused on quality, the grading issue came way more, uh, became way more important, and, and there had to be a way to standardize it. And uh, we appreciate all of the nice things you said about us, but we're just uh, two little uh, young coin dealer, coin uh, collectors that used to put pennies in the penny board. And we were uh, fortunate enough to be able to figure out how to make a living buying and selling coins. And, uh, you know, we had an idea to uh, help out on the grading. And uh, believe me, it's turned out to be way, way bigger than any of us thought it would be. I can echo what David just said. Uh, obviously, you know, one of the biggest problems that we had was the ups and downs in the coin market. And during the good times, everybody was really happy and it's easy to buy and sell coins. And during the slower times, it was much more difficult. So we felt like 
that if we smoothed out the grading, yes, the prices would go would still go up and and still fall at, at different times, but it wouldn't be as exaggerated as it was in the uh, from 1980 to 1982. Would you say that's correct, David? Yes. Uh, more so, if if uh, it would encourage people to uh, participate in the market that we love because uh, they had a way better chance of uh, not suffering from product misrepresentation. One of the things that's impossible not to uh, take note of, our industry has lost quite a bit of retail acreage as it comes to coin shops and coin businesses working in a brick and mortar environment. And it seems that on the national coin show circuit, uh, the dealers that operate sort of in the same space that you would have operated before PCGS, these guys would have been far removed from the type of material and clientele that would have been the mainstay of your typical local coin shop. Is this statement correct? And if so, how fragmented was the coin market in the 1980s? Were quality coins and rarities diffuse, or were they basically being traded among smaller networks of dealers and auction houses? I, I believe that, uh, this is David, I believe that part of it is just uh, the whole change in retail in general with the internet and online buying. And uh, when I first came up in the early 60s, I used to buy and sell coins from, uh, uh, you know, some pretty ruthless guys in downtown Santa Ana, California. There were five coin shops in Santa Ana. Now there's not five in Orange County. Uh, in the 80s, a lot of them became baseball card shops, but that industry changed too. Just the mom and pop shops, uh, like the mom and pop bookstores and everything else, technology has kind of over, uh, came that and it's gone from a mom and pop hobby to a way bigger thing, partly because of what we did with grading and uh, partly because of the more acceptance of uh, tangible assets. But uh, John can tell you some very interesting stories about him and his father and getting silver dollars from the bank back in the day. Yeah, now, you, you know, I think to echo what David just said, uh, you look at Amazon, uh, and, and my both my children uh, don't go shopping at local stores unless they have to. Uh, they pick up the phone, or excuse me, get on the Internet, order something from Amazon, and it's there sometimes that day. Uh, so you, you've changed uh, uh, the paradigm of what the, the entire country does. And I think more coins are sold now than there were back then, lots more. The velocity is, is much greater, and you don't need the coin shop. Back in the, back in the 50s and the 60s when I started, if you didn't go to a coin shop, you didn't see coins. I mean, you could... You could have a, a price list like my father sent out, but they didn't have pictures, so you didn't know what the coin looked like. You didn't know what the grade exactly was, so you'd have to send the coin off or, or have the coin shipped to you to see what the coin looked like. And like David said earlier, uh, we, we took that out of the uh, equation by standardizing the grading. Uh, then, then it just became a price differential. You know, is, can somebody offer you a better price on, on the same item? And I think that, that you see it all across the board, uh, uh, the, the mom-and-pop bookstores, the mom-and-pop stores. You know, Walmart first started replacing all the mom-and-pop, uh, you know, 
type stores like that. And then obviously Amazon sort of replaced Walmart now. That brings up an interesting question. When you talk about online sales, one of the tricky things that came about when uh, dealing with coins in general, and maybe this makes them different than other classes of collectible, but, but not all, it's that when you get to like better day, classic coins, different coins may have similarities in terms of surface preservation, contact marks and what have you. But sometimes what bears out in the grading, even when you have coins that one might assign the correct grade as the same, there can be dramatic differences in the look and the quality of coin. And this is clearly seen in the price that the market is willing to put forth for it. Grading also, it seems to me, is the practical expression of the art of compromise when it comes to describing a coin in a numerical fashion. It's strong here, it's weak here, but at the end of the day, it earns this grade. And because of this fact, it seems that we have never quite gotten to the point within our industry, and perhaps we never will, where coins can truly become commodities and bought and sold strictly based on the consensus opinion of what the coin's grade is at the moment it was reviewed. Well, we've been trying to make uh, coins a financial commodity for a long time. Somewhere here around in the office, I have a, uh, uh, a small local trade paper from 1963 that says SEC to investigate coin market. That was 1963 when people were doing kind of uh, hedge funds on BU rolls, if you will, uh, unregistered, of course. And, 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 but coins, most coins are snowflakes and not commodities. Generic gold coins, some of the modern issues like a new silver eagle. Yes, they're, much more like a commodity, but coins are a collectible. And as much as you, we can do, do to standardize grading, to help with uh, uh, pricing uh, and standardize that, uh, they still are uh, somewhat snowflakes. Uh, the interesting part of coins compared to all other collectibles is no other collectible has as tight of a buy-sell spread. Uh, you know, you can go to a coin show and buy a coin for, you know, $3,000 that the dealer might have paid 2800 for. And, uh, you know, you go buy a painting at a art studio or art store for $3,000, uh, you know, the guy might buy it back for 800 I mean, the spreads for collectibles are generally pretty big, okay, but in coins, they're smaller than in any other. And part of it is the standardized grading, which to a certain extent has commoditized the product, but there's still a little bit of snowflake, which is why the same coin can sell for in the same grade different prices at auctions. It's still a free market. And uh, it's not really a commodity uh, in that regard. Some people like tone coins. Some people like brilliant coins. So even though, you know, two coins might grade 65, uh, you, you see it especially in Morgan dollars, rainbow tone Morgan dollars sometimes. In Mint State 65, it's a coin that's a $125, $150 coin. will sell for several thousand dollars. So, there's other factors besides grade 
uh, like you were talking about eye appeal, but but it's more than eye appeal, really. I mean, those are those are there's people that that buy Indian scents that are beautifully toned. There's people that buy Morgan dollars that are beautifully toned. So those are, are coins that that for sure are snowflakes. They 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 sell for way out of the uh, uh, the the general range that 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 particular grade might sell for. So what were your original strategy sessions like when the idea of forming PCGS was still in its infancy? Uh, obviously, at some point, you were talking to your dealer friends and associates, uh, many of whom were the leading uh, dealers in the rare coin marketplace at the time. Was this concept something that was met with uh, some degree of skepticism on the part of the other professionals? Or was it more or less an easy sell for you, an idea whose time had come, and you being the right person to pull it off? I wasn't really kidding when I said that John and I are, you know, just, uh, you know, little coin collectors that put pennies in the book. We really love coins. And back in the day, in the 80s, there were four of us that would often get together late at night after the coin shows. You know, coin shows were a bigger part of the market at the time, and we went almost every weekend. And so it was John, John Dan Ruther, myself. Bruce Amspatcher and Gordon Rubel, and we'd sit up at night and go, you know, why don't we do like a condition census for all the coins? Or, you know, let's write a book about every coin series uh, and say what the finest known are and, uh, you know, the pedigrees and uh, survival rates. And uh, as we were deciding on telling the coin story in the biggest way possible via books or some publishing, uh, you'd always bump into the grading issue, you know, like what's the grade of the – was it, is it the 1860 O-dime at Eli Eliasburg's that's off the chart or uh, – It's a 45 old 1845 old coin. What would you grade that coin? You should see that Eliasburg coin, and eventually we did get to see it and, and all the other great Eliasburg coins. Uh, but we kept bumping into the grading issue. And then, uh, you know, there was such a push to make coins an investment that there was some product misrepresentation, which was really very harmful for those of us who wanted a legitimate market and wanted this to make our life's career. So a grading service run by professionals, you had the American Numismatic Association at the time, uh, but no offense to them, it wasn't the top graders in the world. We decided that a grading service run by professionals might be attractive to a few dealers. And and we thought that we could do, you know, 3,000 coins a month or so, and we set up the company to do that. Uh, it was apparently an idea whose time has come because the first month we got 18,000 coins submitted, the second month 35,000 coins submitted, and then it uh, took off from there. In terms of Talking dealers into it, uh, we would have meetings at these coin shows, and more and more dealers would like the idea because they wanted to sell coins to investors, uh, new clients, and this seemed like a way to really raise the comfort level. So we, of course, approached our friends first, uh, the people we thought were reputable, and uh, we eventually launched with, was it 32 dealers, Sean? 30, 30 or so dealers. One of the things that strikes me as interesting when I read the Mercenaries Guide, 
a book that I have read over and over front to back. You were writing an investment column for Rare Coins, and in the early chapters of the book, you lay out several recommendations for directions in which the mercenary could buy into the Rare Coin market and come out ahead and make big profits. And in looking at some of these recommendations and looking at the present price levels, it's obvious that the Rare Coin market is completely different now than it was then. Big shifts in collector activity have taken place, and it seems that the type of coins that you were talking about in the book really lent themselves to an investor-type client, someone who wanted to buy classic coins in quantity and put aside boxes of 1881S Morgan dollars and Jim 65 or boxes of Walking Liberty halves. In those early chapters, you really don't focus your buy recommendation on the great rarities. But as we see with where the market is now, the rarities are the coins and certified holders that have performed the best over the course of the past 30 years, and the common material not so much. The difference between what we were selling then and now, and we were selling rare coins, and the Mercenaries Guide talks about, you know, rare date barber coinage and some of the other stuff uh, that are truly rare. So it wasn't like I was against rare coins. There was just this huge focus on quality. And it started probably in the late 60s, early 70s with guys like the late Ed Milas and people like that, and then uh, kind of a 1972-ish sort of type coin boom started, and everybody, Hank Rogers, rest in peace, and guys like that were selling these just fabulous coins. And then uh, we had the big bull market, otherwise known as the Jimmy Carter bull market, in 76 to 80. And then when things came down, uh, you know, some of the rarer coins are selling for huge numbers, uh, in, especially in Gaga super quality grades, the focus was more on common things, uh, as 81S dollars, Mercury dimes, walking halves. And it's all kind of a little continuum focus on quality, which I believe started in the late 60s. There wasn't really that, people didn't look at coins before then like we look at coins, with the exception of maybe John Clapp. And uh, he, the way he looked at coins, which ended up in, with Eliasberg, was like John and I have always looked at coins. It's enough to make you believe in time travel. But there's this whole continuum focus on quality that started in, I believe, the late 60s, early 70s. And it sort of reached an ultimate stage when we came up with PCDS grading. It was kind of a necessity for that sort of uh, quality focus. Charles, one of the interesting things is, is uh, I, I deal in world coins uh, somewhat now, and I'm seeing what happened in our market in the 70s and 80s happening in the, in the world coins today. Uh, because, like David said, you know, when we were young, we collected, you know, Lincoln cents, some Mercury dimes. We filled up our Walking Liberty half set. I had a set of silver dollars, you know, missing the keys, of course, but. If the quality didn't matter as much as filling the hole. And then when PCGS came along, then people started looking at quality because all of a sudden you could see a coin in Mint State 66, Mint State 67, and you saw what they looked like and you went, oh, that's what they're supposed to look like. Because not everybody had seen that quality. The Hank Rogers of the world uh, had those coins in their cases, but the average dealer did not have that kind of uh, merchandise. But you're seeing the same thing happening in world coins where 
uh, high-grade world coins that used to trade for 10, 20% over XF or AUs are bringing huge multiples. And I, I know this for a fact because I've, I've bought some of them and sold some of them. And the same thing happened in U.S. coins. You saw the multiples uh, expand out between MS65 and MS66 and MS67, whereas in the 60s, those coins were priced virtually the same. You could pick whatever you wanted at, at whatever uh, when, uh, price in price 76 or so, when rolls of silver dollars were $110, $5.50 a coin, I would go to the coin show and tell dealers I'd pay $6 if I could pick. And they thought I was crazy and they were making an extra 50 cents. But again, uh, as John said, it's a whole, this whole quality thing, uh, really changed the market. We actually looked at coins closer. I think that resonates with a certain type of collector. But certified coins over time have brought into the hobby a completely new market segment. Let me tell you, the first PCGS coin that I ever bought, and I bought it, I think, in 1990 uh, from a local coin shop, it must have cost me like five or ten bucks. It was a 1958D Lincoln cent, an MS65 red. I still have the coin, and it's still red. That coin was very instructive uh, for me because it was the first coin I ever owned that was professionally graded by a leading company, a coin that essentially could trade for what it said it was on the holder. At the time, you could find other off-brand graded coins, and, and some of them would look nice, but they would not be taken seriously in the marketplace. I used that MS65 Red Lincoln scent to form the basis of my knowledge of what a Gem 65 Lincoln scent should look like when I bought it raw. I took that knowledge and applied it to other series. And eventually, when I became a professional numismatist, I found the time I spent with that coin and others like it were was time well spent. This is by no means an investor coin. So ultimately, certified coins uh, crossed over, uh, at least by 1990, and definitely since then, far outside of where the rare coin market and the very conception of what would be a coin that would end up in a PCGS holder was. And today, it's developed to encompass coins that are so far afield from what we considered collectible, gradable coins even 20 or 30 years ago. And for collectors, I think this provides something that was more meaningful and more thought-provoking than simply taking these more common coins and plugging them into a folder or buying the latest commemorative coin and keeping it in its box. And have fun doing it. And even some of the uh, coins that were supposedly common, turned out to be not that common. Uh, back in the day when John and I were kids or young coin dealers, there was a time when it was the, either BU or, or CERC. It was either uncirculated or it wasn't. Then we start PCGS, and some things that were supposedly easy to get weren't so easy. I remember early on, the first year, uh, that I think, believe it was Joe Flynn, uh, told Bruce Amstatcher, or the other way around, I forget who told who, that they'd pay like some, at the time, ridiculous number, like $250 for a complete set of MS-65 silver Roosevelt dimes. And whoever took the uh, I'll sell them to you side of the deal had a real hard time filling that order. 
some of those dates in MS-65 just weren't as easy as you thought they'd be. So it it it, it is more democratic, and it does open it up for all ages and all all budgets. Again, I guess this goes back to the way you were writing about coins in the Mercenaries Guide. You know, I know Ron Guff established CoinFacts before it became part of the PCGS portfolio. But it seems like many of the ideas that make CoinFacts so exceptional are found in the sections of that book. It really is the progenitor of the CoinFacts model as a date-by-date reference that covers the entire US series. And it seems that the shorthand write-ups that you put in your book really get into the mindset of what a well-informed dealer thinks about coins of a certain series, and it's enumerated in a rich and nuanced way. I think those write-ups are still worth a look. I still go to that book and look them up. Many of them hold up very well after all these years. If, uh, with all due respect to Ron Guff, who is one of the greatest numismatic scholars, researchers, and writers of all time in coin packs, we like it so much we bought it, it, you know, he's wonderful. Uh, a lot of the ideas came from those little meetings with us quality junkies. And uh, I'll do credit to the people behind the scenes, John Danruther, Gordon Rubel, the late Bruce Amspatcher. These ideas and the way to think about and look at coins came out of their brilliant minds and other people like them uh, who starting with Ed Miles in the late 60s and other people in the early 70s, really started, they, we were quality junkies. And then that, it all goes from there, you know, which is the hardest coin to find in gym condition, you know, uh, which which is the last uh, Walking Liberty half we actually graded in MS-65 or, or the the last silver dollar that to Morgan dollar to make the 65 PCGS uh, category, and and all of it flows from that. So I give all credit to those quality junkie pioneers of the 1970s. They're the people uh, that made the market what it is today, and just a few of us were lucky enough to to uh, come up with this idea of putting the coins in the plastic holders and grading them with experts. And, uh, you know, that, but that grew out of uh, uh, those meetings and those boys and those, those coin junkies, quality junkies uh, from the 1970s. You got guys like David Akers that, that was a, just was really into high quality gold. You had collectors like uh, Jimmy Hayes, who would buy the finest. He was a first-year type collector, but he would buy the finest coins he could buy for a particular uh, uh, series and sometimes would search and search and search until he found the perfect coin. Uh, I remember him buying the 1808 Quarter Eagle that just recently sold in Pogue uh, back in uh, the 80s, and he was so excited to find that coin because that's certainly the finest known 1808 quarter eagle. Today we now know that that's an extreme rarity and there's nothing even close to that coin. Uh, but we wouldn't have known that until there was a, until the coins got graded because there was no population report. There was no way for a collector could say, well, I've got a better one. And, and you know, how did you know he had a better one? 
He just said he had a better one. Well, now we now we know. We 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 can send them into grading services and look at them and compare them. Uh, the, the I think one of the David's greatest uh, achievements is coming up with the set registry. Uh, that that changed uh, where we we could now compare different collectors from the past because we've seen a lot of the coins because the Ellisberg sale uh, with the silver and gold selling, Pittman selling, uh, you know, all of these collections, uh, Eric Newman's coins selling. We'd heard about these coins. They were legendary among the, those of us who uh, loved coins and talked about them, but none of us had ever seen some of these coins. Nobody had heard, you know, we'd, we'd heard about Pittman's collection and his proofs, and we'd heard about Ellisberg's the, the clap coins, how perfect they were. I actually saw those in 1976 with Mark Emery when they were on display at the U.S. Mint. So I knew what some of those coins looked like, but I just had the memory of them. Now we got to see them and actually uh, grade them and see really how nice they were because that's where some of the highest graded uh, U.S. gold coins and silver coins uh, uh, originated with the claps uh, father and son team. When you unveiled the concept and made the pitch to get a dealer network on board, did you find that there was much resistance within the industry or amongst collectors? I mean, or were the benefits of a third-party opinion on a coin and the tamper-resistant slab self-apparent from the outset? Well, some uh, old-line companies were resistant. And really, uh, if you think about uh, the miracle that we did, is we talked other people into letting us grade their coins. And uh, that was a pretty interesting situation. So, yeah, there were some resistance. But uh, dealers are very easy to understand. They follow the money. And when the client would come in to whatever company and say, I'll buy that coin for $10,000 if PCGS grades it, whatever, 65 or whatever, after he, the first couple of times, the dealer might say, oh, they don't know what they're doing. But after a while, the dealer understands that, wait a minute, I can make a lot of sales if I do this. And uh, so it was the, the public who wanted it so bad. Uh, that's the hole that we filled. And, and some of the dealers understood it right away from the get-go, and some it took a while. Did you ever uh, have skeptical dealers try to submit coins with issues or fake coins uh, in an effort to challenge your authority as an authenticator or a grading expert? Well, we, uh, you know, uh, uh, we also have an autograph authentication service here at uh, Collectors Universe, and I always say that the forgers don't like us because we make it harder for them to sell their phony autographs. So there are naysayers, and we make it harder for people to sell overgraded coins, in 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 our opinion. Uh, so yeah, there's and there's people who accuse us uh, of all kinds of things, and we investigate everything. There was one uh, dealer who had well, no, not mention names, uh, was a golf buddy of one of our graders. And I got a letter, an anonymous letter, saying that uh, this grader was being paid by this dealer who is his golf buddy to grade his coins higher. So we ran a report showing what that grader's grades were on all of the dealer's submissions. And we found out that 
he was actually uh on a percentage basis low man on all of that guy's coins uh so uh either he wasn't getting paid off or he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do so you know we investigate all of this and and we have so many checks and balances uh that that uh, you know, our integrity is everything, and we were built upon giving the submitter a straight count, and uh, we do that. One of the things that we get calls about all the time at Coin Week, uh, you know, from collectors who find our number on Google or whatever, uh, and these could be collectors or family members of collectors, people who may or may not know much about coins, uh, but they typically come to us convinced that what they have and their possession is something that's really rare. And I hate being the guy to tell them that their 1933 double eagle or 1804 is not real. But when we get these calls and people will not take no for an answer, we advise them to send their coins uh, in to a grading service and that the services will gladly, you know, for a fee, tell them whether they have the great rarity they think they have on their hands or a coin or something that is not genuine. And assuming that any of these callers ever go through with it and pony up the money, what happens when that dubious rarity arrives for your consideration? I mean, do the alarm bells at PCGS go off uh, when one of these coins come in? Because I assume somebody who can't tell whether they have a real or fake coin may not be immediately trusting that a grading service didn't pull the old switcheroo on them and swap out their, their million-dollar coin for a fake. Uh, and, and, and that very risk seems to me could turn into quite a headache for your company. They're usually they're submitted at a very high value and graders are immediately called in. And if it's a, uh, what you'd call an arm's length counterfeit, uh, you know, you see it right away. We don't even accept the submission because we don't want problems with a, uh, you know, a coin that's insured for $3 million and, and it's just an obvious counterfeit and somebody saying that we switched it or whatever. So, yeah, we have little steps and checks and balances all along the way. You talk about 1804 silver dollars. I remember going to Hong Kong in the early 1980s and the flea markets had trays of 1804 silver dollars. You could buy all you want. Of course, they're, you know, Chinese counterfeits. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we get, uh, the hall of, we also have a baseball card grading service. The hall of fame sells reprints of the rare baseball card sets, 1933 Gaudi, 52 tops, et cetera. And we had one guy submit a reprint, obvious, you know, not even close to genuine Honus Wagner baseball card, this famous, you know, six figure million dollar card. And and we said no, and he kept arguing with us, and he submitted it over and over and over again. And we, you know, finally we refused to take the submission. We said, you know, it's not genuine. It's a reprint. You can go buy more at the Hall of Fame for a whole set for four dollars and ninety five cents. So yes, some people want to shoot the messenger, and yes, there are counterfeits, which is why I say the solution to the counterfeit person by the buyer is just buy certified coins and buy them from nationally known dealers. If you buy an $1804 or anything from the swap meet, uh, guess what? It's just like buying a Rolex watch on Canal Street in New York. 
you know, you just uh, you're probably not going to get the genuine thing. Are you surprised at all with where the industry is today? Uh, what, what are your bold and fearless predictions for where we're going in the next 20 or 30 years? Well, what I see in all collectibles uh, is a um, there, uh, the value of the U.S. dollar has uh, been in a long-term downtrend. And I, I see people, uh, you know, buying baseball cards for $400,000 and, uh, you know, paintings for hundreds of millions of dollars. 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle uh, is now bid at over $2 million in an auction. Uh, these things are, are just, uh, uh, these, this uh, appetite for collectibles is not quenchable. They're real, they're interesting, they're historical, they're fun, and, and they're worth money and have been for a, a long time. So I see a healthy collectibles market, a healthy coin market for many years. And, you know, I, John can give his opinion, but I'm a gold bug, and, and I think, uh, you know, gold and silver prices are going to be way higher, so therefore coin prices are, are going to follow suit. I'm uh, long-term uh, very optimistic about the health of the rare coin market. I think people are looking for uh, any kind of tangible, whether it's real estate or coins or baseball cards, that will hold their value in in relation to the value of other things. Because obviously the the whole secret behind it is is that even though the coin might or gold might go way up in value, what will it buy? It'll still buy the same amount of material that it will buy today, and that's. I think a lot of people look at it that way is that it's a store of value. And I think that's why real estate in New York and Southern California has done so well because that's where people want to live. And coins and uh, baseball cards are the same, the same thing. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate your time today and thank you for sharing your insights, uh, the insights into the start of the modern era of certified coins. You shared uh, a part of the story, I think, that doesn't get told very often uh, about how we got to where we are in this industry today, and I thank you. All right. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles. If you enjoy this podcast, you can download the Coin Week podcast back episodes for free from the iTunes store for a complete listing of all 100 episodes of the Coin Week podcast. You can go to our site, coinweek.com, or listen to them also on our YouTube channel. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.